Welcome to the Brown Posey Press Show, part of the Books Big Network, a program dedicated to independent and self-published authors. This show will examine new and unique works of literature, learn about their creators, and discuss the industry. And now your host, Tori Gates. Welcome to the program. In this special edition episode, we'll take you through Cleveland Concoction, an event that brings authors, creators, cosplayers, musicians, filmmakers, gamers, and much more to Aurora, Ohio, just outside Cleveland. These interviews are just a handful of the authors and others who make Clecon a fun and fulfilling time. My first guest, Melissa Stasco, head of Authors Alley. First thing I need to ask is about the history of Cleveland Concoction. I first came here the last time around, but this has been running for a while. Tell us a little bit about how it began. Well, I haven't been here since the very beginning. I came in probably two years in, um, but I did attend the first year. But this has been a pet project of uh, a lot of the uh, people that are on the board of directors right now. And uh, they've wanted to do the uh, whole sci-fi convention in Cleveland. And one of the things with the authors is they wanted to make this a good place for local authors to come and market their things and talk to people, things like that. And the original beginnings of this, I mean, it's like it was, it, it bounces around to a lot of the different, different things. You have authors, you have cosplayers, we now have musicians and so forth. Uh, the, were the beginnings humble or were they as kind of like as large as this? Uh, we've grown over the years, and so, but we always had guests of honor uh, from authors to musical guests, things like that, and we're always expanding and getting in new material and new things, but yeah, we run the gambit of sci-fi, fantasy, cosplayers, everything. Yeah, and one of the cool things, too, this is a unique feature here, is the bookstore. Who came up with that idea? Because it's it's so cool that... Authors like myself, I mean, yes, we, we man the tables, but I find it so much more fun to just be able to come in and do a signing and know that my books are safe. Who came up with that? Um, that was actually one of our local authors, uh, Weston Kincaid. He went to a bunch of conventions with his books, being an author, and he figured out what he didn't want to have happen. And so he actually designed the programming here so that we have a room that authors can come display their stuff on shelves. We man it. We run it. We... Uh, help them sell their materials, and they can go to the book signings, the panels, and know that we're here um, all the time. One of the things that struck me when I was here the last time was just how big the gaming culture is, and I'm not just saying video games, Mm -hmm. like the board game culture, and it was so cool to just walk through, and it's like, here are people playing all these wild board games and games that I played when I was younger, and... Mm -hmm. What do you think that, where do you think that comes from, that, that there is such an, an appreciation and a, just a joy of playing like that? Well, I, I think the gaming community kind of went through a, a transition where it was, you know, family games and you got your Monopoly and your Scrabble and then realized that there were a lot more opportunities for, you know, our generation to get more creative with the games. And so you've got all sorts of new games now. What being adventure games or strategy games, and just the variety is phenomenal. Yeah, and also the, the things that I saw, like uh, when when you know, there was a creators that brought, uh, there was a game that they brought that they were using in a room. It was like being on the deck of the Starship Enterprise or something. Yes. I uh, was amazed at that. We're actually having them back this year, and that's, uh, I believe, Artemis. And so it is something that they come up with where you are 
uh, the crew of a starship. It's really interesting. I haven't had a chance to experience it myself, so. Yeah. Well, I, I, it's probably been upgraded in the last couple of years. That's actually another thing. With the pandemic, I mean, so many things got, got closed down. So, much, so many of us got closed off. And was there a concern that it might not come back? There was, and there was talk on the board on what we wanted to do, whether we needed this to go on this year or whether we were going to shelve it for another year in the future, and we decided we were just going to go, we were going to do it. Okay. You know, so we're a little uh, smaller this year, but we're hoping to really come back. And I guess last question, what is Cleveland Concoction's place in this part of the country, this part of, of the world that we all step into? It certainly serves a purpose. Is there something that you think it really makes it stand out? Um, I just think that we have a great team here. Uh, we all work together. We got a lot of wonderful volunteers, and it's our job to make this enjoyable for everybody. Next up, we welcome back Olivia Barrier of New Cumberland, PA. Her works include fantasy, including A Book Without Dragons, The Bard's Choice, and The World That Forgot How to Dance. Olivia hosted a boot camp writing session that made us work. You have presented to us a really interesting writing exercise and making writers jump out of the box just a little bit. Where did you formulate this? Where did it come from? Honestly, it came from me wanting to see these kinds of prompts in the world. Like, I like prompts that are story starters and like that make you think creatively, but what I was really looking for was something that would help me grow as a writer, and that's when I started thinking about weightlifting and how that is not necessarily the sport you're trying to do, unless you're a weightlifter, I guess, um, but it's going to influence your performance on the field of your sport. So what I was looking for was things that would really focus on one specific element of writing and just push it to the extreme and come up with prompts that would, that would do that for me. Well, you certainly did it for me, and I think you did it for just about everyone else in the room. It was Thank like, like uh, making us write a completely overly dramatic scene and I re I cannot tell you what I wrote <laughs> <laughs> yep but what it did was it made me think yeah there are certain tropes or certain things that authors go to when they're trying to do a scene and it's like when you have one specific type of emotion or one specific type of thing I find I do it myself I go to one thing mm -hmm. yeah. and did you just like yeah and sometimes you need to push it to the extreme and write as dramatically as possible to realize oh yeah i use you know the ellipses way too often i don't need to have that many exclamation points you know i i, I don't need to use the the ten dollar word you know sometimes you, you need to have that um you need to have that that extreme nature in order to to find out where those go-tos are. Not necessarily to even necessarily avoid them, just to be aware of them. And I think that awareness does make you a better writer. Now, did someone else give you some of these ideas in a, in a situation like this, or is this just from your own experience over the years? This is just from me over the years, just coming up with, with ways of just stretching, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah, this is, I have a whole notebook full of them at home. And isn't that the thing, too? It's like, do we really spend a lot of time on our craft once we've started mm -hmm. to publish a little bit? Right, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that that's something that 
I did a lot more before I started publishing, and then it's like, oh, well, I've made it. I clearly have, you know, reached the level. But you never really reach that level. You can always still be improving. You should always still be improving. Mm -hmm. So I try to make time now, you know, even though I'm, I'm already published, I try to make time to go back and just kind of do the basics. Like even professional ballet ballet performers, they still do their tendus and their, you know, regular stretches and stuff like you never get so good you don't need the basics anymore and, and singers are the same way mm -hmm. it's like it's it's funny because tony bennett used to say i do 15 minutes of bel canto scales like every day even right. when he's not touring mm -hmm. and i have going to use that in one of my stories because nice. i think that's kind of cool <laughs> no it but, is cool <laughs> no it's and it's funny too like james hetfield of metallica I didn't know this until I saw a documentary. He has a cassette tape mm -hmm. that a vocal coach gave him in 1980 or 81. Oh, so cool. And it's all these sounds and noises and vocalizations. And mm -hmm. he says, I still, this is, this, this is the original tape. Right. And he will play it and he will sing to it mm -hmm. before he goes on stage, which is why, nice. why both of those guys still have, right. have or had incredible voices. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's a muscle. Everything is a muscle and you have to keep working that muscle or it's going to atrophy. And have you gotten to a point where there's like, like you talked about ellipses, my editor gets on me about that. <laughs> Is there, was there one area that just made you get a little exasperated in terms of how you wrote or the words you used or that kind of thing where you're like, you start to doubt, maybe questioning yourself a little bit? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, like after, sometimes after doing these exercises, like, like I'll do an exercise where, you know, uh, like the reverse of the one that we did where, where I come up with a scene that's only dialogue and I have to write it without any dialogue, I realize that I really overdo eyebrows. I'm constantly having people quirking an eyebrow and waggling an eyebrow and lifting their eyebrows in surprise. And once I go back and look for that in my book, I'm like, oh my gosh, all we're talking about is eyebrows here. So yeah, so, so there are definitely those moments where, you know, I'm like, oh wait, I need to fix all of my writing now because this has been a problem for my whole life. So sometimes you need that pointed out to you. And well, the other thing too was the first draft of anything really, we shouldn't beat ourselves up too badly about it. Oh, for sure. And based on what I just wrote, yeah. Um, <laughs> and the other thing too with that is... Um, it's a first draft's only job is to exist. <laughs> and then it's the matter of editing. Mm -hmm. Now, one of, one of, our, one of the uh, people here was talking about using the same words over and over again and yeah. and I remember my really main mentor when I first started writing always kept an original thesaurus on the table next nice. to him and so I immediately was like I have to go get one right. and and now I use thesaurus.com all the time because right. I I keep seeing the same words or I keep seeing mm -hmm. similar things and I'm like I need another oh yeah yeah sometimes it varies by draft like oh in this draft i really like the word actually and i don't need any of those <laughs> and then and the adverbs you said <laughs> yep i i abuse my adverbs something awful <laughs> my first draft is like all adverbs and then when you go back there it's like uh could i maybe say that with a more descriptive action word or something else yeah normally most of the time <laughs> that's cool well let's uh to recap of course you were on my show some time ago, and you have written some pretty intriguing stuff like like A World Without Dragons. I have, right. How do you describe your writing style, maybe maybe now as, as regards to then? Um, I describe my writing style as, um, 
I love to have the word experimental attached to my work just because that's, so, that's such a broad way of saying I love to play with the rules and I love to push the envelope and I love to see, okay, this is what fiction is. Could we maybe break that rule a little bit and you know make that make the story better instead of worse? Um, so I, lo I love I love describing my work as as experimental. Not all of it is. Some of it's just just fun stories. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah. And there was one other thing that uh, we only talked about it briefly, and I didn't get to find out more about it. You cut loose for a while to become. A professional author. I did. Hashtag and professional author. May I ask about this? Because we all like to think we have a certain level of it, and professional doesn't necessarily mean you're getting paid. It's because that's absolutely true. It's the do. <laughs> yep, absolutely, absolutely. Um, like the main thing I think in my life that changed when I decided, okay, I'm going to do this professionally. Aside from the standard, you know, it's like, okay, I have more time to do it now because I quit this job or whatever. Um, is I had to really make a distinction between I'm spending this time doing the creative stuff and I'm spending this time doing the marketing and the editing and the cover design and kind of separating the muse from the business side of things because mm -hmm. they're two different muscles. And I found that if I focus, if I get too caught up in the actual, like the, the numbers of it and, you know, okay, what convention am I doing next and where am I speaking? And eventually I realized like, oh wait, I haven't written anything in a while. So it's really important to really make that time that's like, okay, this is writing time. This is creative time. This is time where no one's looking at what I'm writing yet. This is just for me, you know, just to keep that, that muse, you know, happy and healthy. Mm. Well, the one thing I always ask people is when you have someone that presents you an idea or talks about what they want to do and maybe they don't know how to proceed, what is the first thing? What's the main thing you tell them? main thing that I tell them is, first of all, to not worry about the first draft being perfect because that is something that is so easy to fall into that hole. It's so easy to, you know, write a page and then be like, oh, I should edit that page. Like, no, you shouldn't. You should write page two and then three and then four. And eventually once it's done, then you may edit page one. Um, but if, if the, the goal, the first goal is always to get it on the page because sometimes you don't really know what it is you're writing about until it's on the page. Um, and once that's done, then you can go back and deal with the editing and straightening out all the errors that you left before. But yeah, like, like it, it sounds like weird, but like it's like, oh, you should just do it. But what yeah, I mean right. when I but what I mean when I say that is, don't confuse the drafting phase for the editing phase. They're two different things. I next caught up with another former guest, Marcus Cook. The Cleveland native has published well over three dozen short stories, and he provided an update on his next project. I am. So editing my novel, my first novel, um, To Hell and Back, and Ava Edison, it's called To Hell and Back right now. Um, and it's, um, it's, about, it's based on a short story I wrote, uh, Ava Edison and the Burning Man, mm -hmm. uh, same character and more advanced about her. I'm turning a short story into a novella, which has been a project, expanding a short story into, from 8,000 to you know, 40,000 words is a challenge, but... I'm enjoying that. Um, I think novellas are going to be inter interesting story books, and I'm looking forward to starting to write some of those. And you had done uh, short stories pretty much uh, when we last spoke, and uh, I think there, there is an art of writing those and then jumping to this thing. Uh, what has the journey been like in terms of going from the short pieces to this uh, slightly longer work? 
It's been challenging, more challenging than I thought it would be. Um, when I, my wife has been really helpful with editing and going through it and reading and be, you know, brutal. <laughs> I mean, the, she, I, I buy her a special red pen so she could bleed the pages. Um, and but she, she keeps telling me, Marcus, you you have a novel. It's not a short story. You can expand this. You can keep on going. You don't have to be so not descriptive or not. And um. I'm getting there. I, I, I mean, every time I read, I'm like, "Oh my goodness!" Um, and you notice things. You notice that you read, reread it. That why, why did I? You know, this was not as funny as I thought it was. And mm-hmm. just, just expanding and really getting to know the characters, and it's been really challenging but fun. It's, it's, I'm really excited about it. It's gonna be sad when the first one's done, but <laughs> I'm excited at the same time. Well, that and that's it. It's like there's sort of that that excitement that you have got a result, you finally got it done, and then there's the letdown of oh god, what do I do next? Right. Right. <laughs> now tell us about Ava because uh, we talked about her before, and you've got a very interesting character here. Tell us where she comes from. Tell us about her. Ava is a former Navy SEAL. She is a widower and a single mom. Uh, with a 13-year-old child, as far as the novel, and starting to the novel, 13-year-old daughter. But she's also a thief, a professional thief. Um, you know, and her partner, which is the special part of this, is a 18th century ghost that was a thief, based on actually a real um, thief in the 18th century, like uh, Mary. And she, uh, and so it's very, I, I, she's like a female Indiana Jones, but a thief instead of an archaeologist, where she has to, you know, it's, it's got a, it's a lot of religious-based stuff, and mm-hmm. she gets the special things, and in this book, she actually goes to hell to get a, a tree something, a Buddhist hell, not regular hell, so it's... Ah, and that can be, that can be worst fears realized, that can be a lot of things. It was interesting. You know, doing the research on, you know, you know, there's 18, there's eight holes on Earth, supposedly, that go to hell. Yeah. And um, even the Buddhist hell one was very special because there's a, there's a uh, monastery next to this, in this volcano in Japan, for real. Yes. And they actually are there to escort those souls to hell. And so, and they also have a spa. So that was really... <laughs> So that was awesome to write. The, the you know the going to the spies uh, cover. And... <laughs> well, that's great. And it's um, about how long is is this novella going to be? Oh, no, this is a novel. Oh, okay, no, it's, like full length. It's full length. Yeah. Great, great. It's over sixty thousand pages or six thousand words right now. So good, good. And uh, how does it looks like this is going to is this a series? It sounds like she's going to have yeah. a lot of adventures. Oh yeah, I'm already got the second one in my head. Like and. Uh, as soon as this one's done and I get you know, ready for publishing, I will continue with Ava. And getting back to the editing thing, you talked about the red pen. I got the red pen treatment from my first mentor a long, long time ago. And I was like, oh, great, I'm back in elementary school. But at the same time, my friend Dick was, was such a wordsmith, and he very correctly pointed out my lack of grammar skills my tense change was horrific <laughs> how did you and, and it sounds like your wife doesn't pull punches and that's the kind of editor you need yeah no she she doesn't and she gets mad about the grammar skills she actually made me read books and says you need to go back to school and you need to read some books about grammar stuff because i want to enjoy the book and see give you where you know i think there are holes in your story i don't want to just take time doing this grammar yep so um we're past that now we're, the grammar's gotten a lot better <laughs> and uh 
So she's been looking for, she's been finding the plot holes and saying, you know, go back and maybe, you know, beef this up or this makes no sense or this is the dumbest joke I've ever heard or you're not Josh Whedon, please stop writing like him. <laughs> One of your influences? He or? has been. Josh Whedon, um, Elmer Leonard, uh, Dean Koontz uh, are three of my big influences when I write. And, That's cool. And I think Ava's kind of an Elmer Leonard meets Dean Koontz type of story. And as you go you jump off from that and more of you comes out right yes well that's cool um how about this my last question will be what if somebody comes to you and says i've got an idea i'm trying to figure out what to do what's the first thing you tell them in terms of how to proceed take a piece of paper and write just, just put it down put start just start whatever's in your head put it on paper and go from there when we come back a little music when the brown posy press show returns Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of authors from many genres. If you are into horror, thrillers, or fantasy, check out our Hellbender Books imprint, Thomas Malafarina's Maliformed Reality series, The Thirteenth Child by Nick Korolev, The State Changer series by Chris Fenwick, or the psychological thrillers of Keith Rommel. Find these and other works at the Hellbender Books tab and all works of fiction and nonfiction at sunburypress.com. Welcome back. There were numerous entertainers at Cleveland Concoction, and one of the hits of the weekend were Camille and Kennerly Kitt, also known as the Harp Twins. Their music has captured the imagination of fans worldwide by turning their hands to both traditional music, but also rearrangements of popular rock and metal. In concert with the Wolfgang Twins, they turned in three enthusiastic performances. Tell us about your beginnings and uh, your musical start and, and this duo that you have. Sure. We first started playing the harp when we were about 13. We, uh, a friend of ours, their mom, their mom played the harp, and so she let us try out her harp, and we were just instantly enamored with it, but our so mom didn't have enough money. money to buy us a harp, so we did all sorts of odd jobs, like dog walking and babysitting, and earned enough money for a small used harp that we then shared. Started taking lessons from our friend's mom, and then eventually we switched teachers, um, got our degrees in classical music from the Conservatory of Music. And harp performance, and uh, but now we specialize in writing our own music and uh, covering music that people wouldn't really expect to hear on the harp. We love, love doing rock and soundtrack. And uh, we, we tour all over the place, uh, all over the country, performing and worldwide. And yeah, it's a blast. That is cool. Now, uh, I'll ask about the rock-oriented material later, but uh, your your influence, obviously, your mom. What were you listening to? I mean, you must have been listening to what she was playing or what what she was coming out of her. But what what got you early on musically? Well, our mom didn't actually play the harp. It was a friend, oh, okay. a friend Sorry. of ours. Their mom played the harp. But um, we heard a lot of classic rock growing up around the house. Yeah, our, we, our mom played a lot of classic rock music on, on the, the radio. Yeah, she listened to a lot of classic rock. So we grew up hearing a lot of that. And we, when we started off uh, taking harp lessons, we did a lot of Celtic and classical music. That was our kind of, uh, you know, our start in music, so to speak. Okay. And... One of the things I noticed on the videos was you're so in sync in terms of how you play. And I don't know if this makes any sense or not, but 
when I was in a band, it was really difficult to find someone that really understood what I was doing. My co-founder did, our bass player did, and it was like we could lock in and know where the other was going. Is that it for you? Oh, for sure. I think being identical twins and having played music together for as long as we played music, we definitely have kind of an intuition when it comes to playing together. Yeah. And that natural instinctness, for sure. Yeah. That's also been honed in by years and years of performing. Plus, we spent nine months together before we met anyone else, so we're kind of naturally in sync. <laughs> okay, very cool. And, no, recent years, uh, there have been some folks that have done fantastic music. They've taken classical music into other areas. A friend of mine was just talking about two cellos and how they were doing ACDC and things like that. When did you decide, let's do Metallica or whatever? <laughs> you know, I think it was, I mean, uh, it was basically when we were in high school, but, you know, we started to arrange music that we enjoyed listening to. And, and it was one of those things where a lot of string instruments, violins, cellos have been used in rock music and rock bands for decades. Mm -hmm. But the harp has very much been left behind. Yeah, it's kind of left to tea rooms and weddings. And, and so we really mm -hmm. wanted to do something different with it and play music that harp has kind of been played we first for started, centuries. We first started uploading our kind of our rock covers to YouTube actually about 12 years ago. So, okay. and at that time, literally no one was doing that on harp. It was just like unheard of. And yeah. we weren't really sure anyone would want to be listening to it, quite frankly. Um, we were really pleasantly surprised. It was, yeah. uh, it was uh, once people gave it a chance, they were... They were yeah. really had a lot of fun with it. And what, is it is it different, say, over in Europe than perhaps here? Because so many musicians have told me, blues musicians in particular, that when they go to Europe, they really feel like they're home. Mm. Sometimes even more so than in their home country because they know the music and they're so invested in it. How does our audiences different? Uh, yeah, uh, for us, we found that the most enthusiastic audiences for uh, genres like rock and metal are definitely in South America. Mm -hmm. um, they, the, a lot there's, of the population has a true love for the genres, and so there, there's just nothing like the enthusiasm of South America. Their their audiences there are just it, wonderful. It's amazing. Yeah. I must now ask about. Twin Destiny's Blood Song. Tell us about this book. Sure. Yeah, we did a, um, our most recent album. It's actually an album novel collaboration with New York Times bestselling author Debbie Begay. So she wrote the novel, we wrote the album, but and, it's, uh, the, the, the main characters are very loosely based off of us, and, and but it's kind of a dark fantasy, a bit of horror in there, and so she wrote the novel. And we wrote an album of original music that corresponds to that novel. And it all so. kind of it goes together kind of as a big multimedia project. Um, it's really unique and fun, and it was an awesome uh, experience. We're actually currently starting to work on book and album number two for the Twin Destiny series. But yeah, the, um, our characters in the novel, they, uh, they, they, they play harp by night, and then they fight evil by later night. <laughs> yes, they find that they have this kind of legacy of being able to see things that other people and uh, to fight them to yeah fight them, to protect the world yeah okay i can't forget them uh these gentlemen with you the wolfgang twins now are they opening for you playing with you yeah, they perform with us uh, right now. They are actually joining us for the finales of our show. kind of the second half of our show. Double Viking drums, which is really fun. Um, audience has been just loving it a lot. But they also have their own musical projects where they play a lot of ancient instruments and um, uh, really cool music. It's kind of like Viking rock, Viking metal. Yep, so they do that as a studio project. Yeah. Excellent. Well, last question. Um, if people have never heard you or seen you before, haven't seen your videos, when they come to a show, what are they going to get? 
Oh, I think they're going to be a little surprised. Even if they have seen our music videos, sh our live shows are very different. They're very, very interactive, comedic. Um, you know, we have a lot of banter. We banter with the audience with each other. And it's just a lot of fun, you know. For all ages. All ages. Uh, definitely family-friendly fun. Next, we welcome back Jason Lady, whom we interviewed for the middle grade book, Monster Problems. A certain magic pen continues to show up, as it did in the follow-up, Super Problems, and his latest, Time Problems. A Columbus, Ohio native, Jason now lives in Cleveland and fills us in. My books are the Magic Pen Adventure series. In each one of them, a middle schooler draws something with a magic pen that becomes real. That's what happens when you draw with a magic pen. Whatever you draw becomes real. But they never know that at first. And what they draw, it has to do with a problem that they're experiencing. And my latest book, Time Problems, stars a middle schooler named Rachel who does not want to go to middle school. She's a fifth grader who uh, now at summer vacation, she's looking down the road to uh, sixth grade and she's like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go to middle school. The homework's going to be too hard. The older kids are going to be too mean. And I don't want to do it. And so she looks at her stuffed animal collection, and uh, she inadvertently gets the magic pen. And she draws with it um, a couple of characters that she, in her imagination, envisions, hey, they could actually help me out with my problems. An attack pig who can protect her from mean older kids, and a time duck who's a wizard who happens to be a duck who can control time and make actually make it so she never has to go to sixth grade because summer vacation will never end once he's done his work. And so she doesn't know the pen is magical, like I said. And so she goes to bed one night after having drawn these pictures, wakes up the next morning, and these two characters have become real. And they are off and running and doing the missions that she had in mind for them. And it turns out to create a lot more problems and struggle uh, than she envisioned. So be careful what you wish for kind of scenario. And the great thing about it, too, was how you it, it, it read out in really smooth style. And you, you, went, you stepped into Rachel's shoes in an incredible way. We may have asked this before, but... How, dif how difficult is it to remember enough of your childhood if we wish to remember it? <laughs> and also to, um, to get back into that kind of character and think like that. How difficult is it? Not very hard for me, um, I think, because uh, I'm a kid at heart. A lot of people tell me that. You know, hey, Jason, you're very youthful at heart. And yeah. In fact, when I was looking for who to write for in terms of my audience, teenagers, adults, who am I going to write for, my wife actually suggested, why don't you try middle school kids? Because I think that's kind of where your sensibilities are. You have the heart of a middle school boy. And I said, you know what? I'll give that a try. I think you might be right. And sure enough, the sense of humor, uh, the kinds of uh, things that appeal to kids in the story, able to draw upon those pretty easily. And all these stories have a, uh, a root that is the anxiety a kid that age experiences. And apparently my middle school years uh, were indelibly imprinted upon me because I could draw upon them and remember them with ease and uh, insert that into the story to make it kind of more authentic from a kid's point of view. And you've done that in this series of three, and we were talking earlier uh, about is there another one, is the, or is your creative mind heading somewhere else, do you think? Yeah, you know, I, I'm debating that right now. I'm attempting to write a fourth one in this uh, series of books. Uh, there's monster problems, super problems, time problems. What kind of problems will be in the fourth book? That is the quandary I'm in right now because all of these, like I said, are reaching back, finding an anxiety you experience as a kid, bringing it into this story. And it's like, okay, have I run out of them, anxieties, or is there more I can draw upon? So that's kind of where I am right now. I've made probably four attempts to start one, and I've just had to stop because I've just, I have to be honest with myself, I think we all do as writers, 
players, this isn't working. I've got to stop and like rethink my approach and regroup. And has your has your approach changed? Do you think, or are you still going toward writing the same way, like the routine and how you set up and so forth? Um, so far, doing things the same way, which is for me, I'm not a writer who uses like big outlines, big detailed outlines, scene by scene of what happens. Um, I'm more that person that uh, has in mind who the major characters are, the major uh, conflict in the story, how it's going to end in some cases, and then I just write, and I have that bare skeleton kind of guiding me, and I kind of see where the characters in the story takes me, and so I'm approaching things that same way, and so what I find in this process, the more times I've done this writing books, I've realized that sometimes if it's not working, you know, you feel like you're kind of you're kind of slowed down in the mud, so to speak, you're driving along, it's like, oh, I can't get through this anymore, it's just too hard, it's not sailing, you know, forward easily enough. I find I have to swap out different parts, so like maybe I take away some of the characters and put in different characters. Mm -hmm. Maybe I change the setting. Maybe I change, um, you know, what the central conflict is. That isn't working. Okay, well then I'll find another one and put it in there. Um, so a lot of that right now, kind of trying different things, experimenting honestly, just to see what works. And uh, so so far I haven't found like the thing that works, but uh, you know I am pushing against that. I'm working on it. Right. And how about your target audience? Uh, how do they react to these these stories? You know, from what I've seen, uh, they think they're really funny, they laugh. Um, when I read the story out loud to them, or even when I'm just describing the premise to them, they're just cracking up. They find it amusing. And that's what, something that's great about that age group. They haven't gotten so serious yet that they can't find absurd, quirky things like in my, that are, pop up in my books. They still find those things amusing. Also, they see a lot of themselves in the books, which is very gratifying for me. Like my very first book has an older brother, younger brother, uh, jealousy, sibling rivalry situation. Every set of brothers or even sisters that comes in front of me, here's what that book is about. And I just see their eyes light up like, oh, I know what this is like. You know? Good, good. Well, um, and there's the thing for people that maybe are trying to write. What advice do you give someone who's maybe targeting that audience? They've got a story of that sort. What would you say to them is the best way to go about it? Or what, what's the one thing that works for you? Sure. So for me, um, I know that age group, like I said, still appreciates humor, still appreciates absurdity, still appreciates quirkiness. Um, you can bring all those things to the table, just like ludicrous premises, absurd characters, and that age group still appreciates that. Um, you have to pay attention to like your word choice, your sentence structure, like those kinds of things for that reading level, of course, too. Um, and then also for that age group, uh, too, you know, there are kids that are, you know, they're in that tween stage. They're trying to figure themselves out who yep. they are. Yep. Um, who, who am I in this world? How do I relate to other people? All those quandaries that we all face when we're that age. I'm not a little kid and also not a teenager. So bringing some of those anxieties, some of those like problems, some of those thoughts down into the story, will just kids will see themselves in it. Like I described earlier, they'll see themselves in that story and it'll, it'll just really intrigue them. Vic K. Walker of Hamilton, Ontario, joins us now. The multi-genre author of the Enlightened series was part of a reading event, and I caught up to her right after. I actually fell into the fantasy fiction because my son refused to read. So oh. I kept getting called into the office at, the, at his school, so I wrote something for him, and that's the series that took off. Unfortunately, not my period of romance as much. <laughs> Although... Uh, it, it does well as well. Um, mostly I, I'm a big fan of the humor, so I stick humor in as much as humanly possible. And I like to create worlds that are scientifically possible. Okay. And where is your influence uh, before before you help writing for your son? What were you reading? What was, what was the things that came to you when you started to write? Um... 
I like romance. Um, I started out with historical romance and then got into the paranormal romance, which is why I love it so much and that's why I write it. Um, I like books that make you feel, that take you out of your world, bring you to somewhere else where you can laugh, you can cry, you can be horrified, you can be scared, thrilled, and that's what I like to write. I, mm -hmm. I'm more about, I want you to feel as many emotions as possible. And is that anything to do, because those things always tend to come from ourselves when I write it's the same thing what am I feeling and sometimes I'm projecting it but sometimes it, it becomes it's, it's like grist for the mill in terms of what do my characters need to feel what do I want them to feel Is, does it come from within yourself your family around you uh, yeah um, there's a little piece of me in every single one of my characters even the villains because uh, there's some stuff going on in my head that's dark and, and, and creepy <laughs> and this is a great outlet to bring it out so the good guys, the bad guys, there's a little piece of me in every single one of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what is your latest work? What, what are you doing right now? Well, I'm right, right now I'm working on uh, a fantasy series that's part uh, heterosexual romance and part homosexual erotica. Mm -hmm. so. That will appeal. <laughs> now, I hope so. <laughs> well, that was the thing. You and I spoke last night on uh, a panel about what they called sexy time of do you fade to black do you uh do you show the whole thing how do you work it and i think we all kind of agreed it's sort of down to the writer's own taste but it's also what fits the story i think that was the main thing mm -hmm. uh, if you could remember some of that repeat some of that is as to from your point of view what serves what doesn't um it, it, it absolutely it depends on the story the characters uh mm -hmm. Obviously, with the erotica, um, the, the primary focus is sex in erotica. Mm -hmm. um, with the romance, it's more about the story. So the erotica has is sex with a story, and the romance is the story with sex. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's going to be, in the, in the heterosexual side of it, uh, more lead up to the sex, whereas... Mm -hmm. The homosexual is going right into it. <laughs> Although right. sometimes with my heterosexual stories, like my paranormal romance, uh, we start off right, right in chapter one, because um, that's how the story goes. And and how would you, uh, what would you classify your audience as? What, what kind of folks are, are buying this, and, and what are they giving you for reaction in terms of what they like and that sort of thing? Uh, well, I've, I've got a quite the range of audiences because uh, I, I write middle school uh, I write young adult and I write adult so that's okay. that runs the entire gambit um, actually my middle school books are have got funny accents and funny um, characters like trolls and gnomes and <laughs> so they're actually really fun to read to like younger kids yep um, and adults are actually my biggest fans of these books too so um, I'm an all-ages writer um, the, obviously, the adult books are adult only, mm -hmm. and yeah, I get a lot of uh, from all of them that, that they take you into a different world, world, and you feel like you're actually there, like you're inside a movie. You you can see everything, right. feel everything, right? And like I said, I'm going for the emotion, so that, that always makes me happy when I read that. That 
they're feeling what I want them to feel and great. what I feel when I write them. So. That's great. And what would you say to people that might be interested in writing in your genre? What would you? What kind of advice do you give to people who want to try to step into it? I just do the same thing I did. Start with reading it and the things that you like, the things that you don't like, you know, so there's certain things that I don't like that I've read a lot in paranormal romance uh, that I avoid mm -hmm. and the things that I like are the things that I put out. So it's, it's a good place to start with what others have done and work from there. After this, we'll talk with two authors who give us in-depth insight on writing and Klecon when the Brown Posey Press Show returns. Sunbury Press Books is your home for independent and innovative authors. Verboten Books is the imprint for mature content. Check out Satan's Petting Zoo and Mayhem Menagerie, written by Brian Kozhensky and Chris Pisano. Also, Lana Shea's Erotic Hustle and Bram Stoker's Rated Z series. Find these and books for all tastes at sunburypress.com. We're back. We now speak with author Weston Kincaid, an author of character-driven fantasy, horror, and the paranormal. The former educator has written short stories which have appeared in collections such as Fifty Shades of Slay, and he's also the author of the Life of Death trilogy. The El Paso, Texas native now lives in Ohio. Uh, well, things that are working with me is concoction, obviously. You know, I, I volunteer and help out with it. But then I've also got uh, a short story anthology that I'm putting out. Uh, this comes out March 31st. Uh, a little bit of witty, supernatural, uh, you know, twists and turns. Um, so it's, it's called Tales from the Box, Volume 1. Uh, the main theme is fantasy and supernatural horror for the first volume. Okay. And how do you describe your writing? What do you, what do you, where do you put yourself? Uh, well, I'm a member of the Horror Writers Association, so I, but uh, all of my stuff is supernatural horror or fantasy, uh, a little bit of sci-fi um, with my prior ser series especially. But um, ideally, uh, I, you can kind of sum it up by saying if Stephen King and uh, Neil Gaiman had a baby, that would be me. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And you were um, talking about some of the other series that you have. Tell us about some of the other work that you've got going. Uh, well... My flagship series is my Life of Death trilogy, which mm -hmm. if you uh, are familiar with M. Night Shyamalan's uh, Sixth Sense, you know, the boy who sees dead, dead people, yes. imagine if he grew up to be a homicide detective. Oh. And so he's still operating within the constraints and the confines of real world, you know, because no one would believe him if he told him. Right. It wouldn't hold up in court, but he, so he's got to use his abilities, but then find the proof to convince everyone around him on the police force so it's a, it's a bit odd um, but it's modern day uh, and then I've got a uh, sci-fi vampire series so think uh, the 10th dimension parallel worlds uh, meet vampires um, and you've got a, a black ops agency who decides that you know if they can take control of these kids who are starting to exhibit these abilities to shift from one plane to the next they can train them as operatives Mm -hmm. And they can control this interdimensional travel and maybe even resources. Mm. And what is your fan base like? The the people who buy, where what kind of like what kind of an age group, what kind of interest in that sort of thing? Uh, well, for my um, paranormal mystery, a life of death series, it's main, it's YA, but up through adults. I've got. Um, People as young as you know, 10, 11 years old who love the series, mm -hmm. um, and then 
all the way up to, you know, uh, 50s, 60s, it, it doesn't really matter. It's one of those that seems to cross the whole age boundaries. Um, and in my uh, prior series, which is the, the sci-fi with vampires, etc., mm -hmm. uh, is more geared towards adult, but not not adult adult, but just right. not YA necessarily. Right. And I guess I, you've mentioned some names, and they obviously are influences. Where others came in, like what you were reading when you were growing up, what moved you into this? Yeah. You know? uh, well, I was actually uh, inspired by a lot of the classics. Uh, William Golding, you know, um, Of Mice and Men, that was a, a big one. Uh, Steinbeck, because uh, I, I really like a lot of the coming of age stuff. Because even though I write horror, I write clean horror. You know, I don't use a whole lot of vulgar terms. It's just not my style, right. you know. Um, but it works well. Um, the what was the question again? <laughs> I guess I guess influencing you. Oh, influences. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, Steinbeck's of Mice and Men because I love the the twists. If you think about the ending of of Mice and Men, right? Uh, whenever I taught, I would often you know quote that or or comment on it whenever I was teaching literature. And I mean that twist ending where you know he has to make that decision, that horrible decision, that struck me so hard and stuck with me mm -hmm. that. Now that that it's those kind of twists and everything that I like including in all of my stories, be it flash fiction, uh, short stories, or full novels or series. And you said you were a teacher. What what level of grades did you teach? I taught everything from pre-K to twelfth grade. Wow. So I did English and then later computer science. And that, without doubt, must have given you some some the kids the stories the kids want to tell and trying to help them that sort of thing. Yeah, there there were a lot of different stories. Some of them more humorous than others. Uh, some of them more tragic. But uh, yeah, there. I I think at some point there will be an anthology of just stories about you know the things you might encounter in classrooms. <laughs> and that would be really different. <laughs> and here's something. Now this was attributed to you here at Cleveland Concoction. Um, the bookstore that we have, that we're standing in right now, which lets us, uh, lets most of us authors go have fun <laughs> instead yeah. of sitting at the table. I heard you came up with that, or did you see that someplace else? Uh, no, I I actually came up with it, um, but it was it was just at right place, right time, or wrong place, right time, depending on how you look at it. Um, I wrote uh, a book about the experience just to give people. Um, kind of an instructional guide to help them if they wanted to do the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's called Village mm -hmm. Your Author's Alley. Right. Um, and um, I showed up the first year, and this story is actually in the book, but I showed up the first year as an attendee. And I had just moved to Cleveland, didn't know anyone, anything, nothing. I thought, oh, look, there's a convention coming up in three days. All right, I'll go. Right. And so I showed up and waited in the author's room and nothing. This was year one of Cleveland Concoction. Right. And so, and I think two authors in, the, in about six hours came mm -hmm. through that room. Wow. And so, and I was just dumbfounded. I didn't know what was going on. So I went ahead and I, I went to the panel that I had wanted to attend. And un unfortunately, we were all standing at the doorway where they had it locked. 
and uh, they were opening it up for the, the panel, and there was a bunch of people who wanted to attend and talk to the authors and everything who were waiting okay. with me. And so the guy opened it, and he asked, you know, so where are my authors? And we're all looking around. No hands are coming up. Oh, boy. <laughs> and so I, uh, I went, um, well, I'm an author. I raised my hand. And he said, all right, take it away. <laughs> I was like, um, um, all right. You know, so wow. I improv the whole panel, uh, uh, you know, talking about my books and stuff. And we, it, it went great. Um, and then afterwards, I went to confess my sins because I felt like I just hijacked a panel. And I, yep. and I, and I, yep. I don't know anyone, you know. <laughs> So I, I came back and um, found uh, Giggles uh, in the vendor's hall, who was kind of in charge of things. And I confessed, and I said, I'm sorry. She said, do you want to do this next year? <laughs> and so I all of a sudden got put in charge of just creating. And so I wound up going to a whole lot of cons to try and figure out what to do. Yep. And I found out some things that were great. They were, you know, hey, this is what we should do. But the publishing landscape had changed so much, you know, in the last 10, 15 years right. that there were some things that could be improved on. And, and so what I started finding was things to tweak, things to do differently. And I just kind of put all those together in this big stew and Cleveland Concoction came out. You know, it's, or not Concoction. I didn't do the whole department. That's other people who did great right. stuff. Or, but I did the department of well, Authors Alley. <laughs> that's cool. And I mean, it's, it, it is certainly something I have never seen before. And I have suggested it, not knowing you were the inventor, I suggested it to other people and said, this is... This kind of frees up the authors to move about, and then they can come in and sit down if they like to do the thing. And uh, it's no, it's worked out really well. Thank you. Uh, last question I have for you: When you are approached by someone who's got an idea for a story and they're not really sure how to proceed, you might fall back in your educational experience. What do you tell them? Well, I mean, it depends on the situation, what what their problem is, but. I mean, I love, as a, as a teacher, someone who loves helping, you know, either students or just, you know, new people who are new to writing, I love helping them find themselves, find their own style, find their own, you know, what, what should they do. And so right. a lot of times, you know, we'll just have a little discussion, talk about, okay, what's going on and, and, and what their problem is. And if it's a writing block or, or some, some kind of stumbling block with the plot, then, you know, I'll interject some ideas thing and they can kind of take what they want and run with it, you know. And so it's, it's, it normally just comes down to lots of discussions here in Authors Alley. A model for other events and fairs, possibly. Authors Alley let people like me walk about without being tied to a table, although some of us work better that way. We finish with Marcus Calvert, whose love of science fiction pushes the boundaries. What seems to be an effortless string of short stories includes Murder Sauce, Frog Code, Coin Game, and the Unheroic series. I'll let him introduce himself. I am Marcus V. Calvert. I'm from Detroit, Michigan. I currently reside in Akron, and I am a degenerate writer. <laughs> Very well, then. Let us begin with uh, some of the work that you have been doing. What do you describe your style as? Uh, it's not really a style. It's more of a voice. Dark, violent humor. That's what I figured out when I started writing short stories in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Over 300 short stories about time travelers, zombies. I threw in a western. I mean, I went from fiction to various forms of fantasy, the subgenres of sci-fi and all that. And 
I started taking the best of them and I put them together and I made my first collection of short stories called Unheroic. Then I did the Book of Schemes. And then my friends grabbed me and started going, write a novel! Your stuff is good, but it's too short. Write a novel. Mm -hmm. And I had this idea of a supervillain who went to heaven and it kicked him out for being evil. His actions got him in, but his soul was darker than the devil's. Clone from a bad guy. He was just meant to do unspeakable things. And I'm like, yes, I'm going to take the story from this bad guy, I mean the short story, and make him my main character. Benjamin Clyde, gentleman fixer, dude in a suit, Sin City with superpowers, a place so corrupt, Pillar City, that if you were to blow it off the map with a nuke blast, global crime would drop by 15%. So Clyde shows up at the 9-11, sets up a Merc empire, loses it in one night, and is forced to fight crime. No one knows that he used to be a black ops legend before he changed his name, his DNA, his face, and even his ethnicity. Hmm. And so this poor guy has to fight crime, and everyone thinking he'll be dead in a week turns out in the next book, Murder Sauce, the cover is he's taking a selfie as he blows up a city block. Hmm. And he just gets into various misadventures. And since he helped kill most of the heroes on the planet, there's something of a shortage of good guys saving the world. So he steps in to fill the void for two reasons. One, he likes the world the way it is, and B, bad guys are rich. So why not kill them and steal their stuff? Again, he is not the hero. He is not the anti-hero. He is a villain. So when I'm selling these books, folks coming up to me and say, hey, how do you do what you do? And um, I cooked up the idea of the battery as sort of a healthy guide. See, how-to books from writers, in my opinion, are a bit too long. I wanted to come up with something I could actually finish. So I came up with 200 prompts, 50 pages, a little wisdom about how to get into the writing business based on how I did it. And I'd say, okay, it's on you. Get some Doritos. Get something to drink. Get some gangster polka. Pick a prompt and just go. Like a prompt like, uh, Death wants to cut an album with you. How does that end? Or you're hunting werewolves in a post-apocalyptic setting with no silver. What happens? And it doesn't have to be the prettiest story. Just finish what you start. Mm-hmm. You get your wax on, wax off training there. Figure out when's the best time to write. How, what are your good habits and bad? And if you write enough short stories, you just get better. But more importantly, mm-hmm. you get ready to maybe do something else. Maybe you have nightmare fuel. Or maybe you actually have finished product that you can someday write around or submit. And then um, I also have a bit of a cheat. See, I came up with a role-playing game in the 90s. Too, what was to say? It's just too expensive to do a role-playing game, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So what I did was, I took a thousand powers and I figured out how to insert it in a randomizer. So whenever I needed a character, I could just play around with my laptop, and boom, I'd have somebody cool. And I use it in all my fiction: cool. different type of monster, different type of ghost, different type of psychic hooker, whatever. And then I figured out how to put it on paper during the pandemic because I wasn't sure I was going to make it through the pandemic. Right. I generated two hundred characters. Named that the silly recipes, called it a cookbook, and the ingredients are five superpowers per recipe. So mm. if you close the book and you think I want to create a Winnie the Pooh super spy or a different type of plague, <laughs> you think of that in your head, basically what would it be like, what are the things you want, and then you flip to the page and you find a, an ingredient that goes to, uh, to your idea. And the randomness, it, it makes it unpredictable. Wow. Even now, it's surprising me the stuff I come up with. And where did the stuff, where, what was like the grist for the mill, if I may ask? Like, what were you reading growing up? What, what were your influences and what brought you into that? Uh, I think part of it was dyslexia. 
mm-hmm. um, my mom wanted me to be able to function normally because I could not read numbers normally. And somewhere along the line, I became a rabid bookworm. Mm-hmm. On top of that, straight up movie geek. I mean, I'm a child of the 70s and 80s. So I'm watching movies like Ghostbusters and Star Wars. I'm going, you know, I can make better movies than this. I couldn't, but as a nine-year-old, I got a typewriter and I'm trying to write. And my mom's like, you're going to be a lawyer. And Uh-oh. I, that, didn't, that, that did not happen. So I guess um, I'm reading all these sci-fi shorts, I mean, sci-fi novelists. And the one who really got to me was Harry Harrison, Staring the Steel Rat series. Mm-hmm. Short, sweet novels, to the point, boom, crack. And then when you're self-publishing it's in your best interest to write them reasonably short anyway just to get to the point because well there's the cost of business the longer they are the less you make the more mm-hmm. you'd have to charge and um nick Pilata, bureau 13 series oh, brilliant author mm-hmm. and um simon r green the night side and uh the druid series so basically these three guys had that thing in common they just wrote short sweet stories to the point they took their realities and they made them their own they taught me interesting lessons too like don't let a series go too far right i mean you, you, a series becomes your bread and butter sometimes it kind of drags you along whether you like it or not mm-hmm. and what i liked about what i ended up doing was i wrote two trilogies of short stories i wrote the battery series i wrote the antagonist cookbook just two of them and then the I Villain series, I think I'm going to do five and then stop. And then I'm going to do standalones. I want to always have different books out there. Some stuff useful, some stuff entertaining, some stuff long, some stuff short. So when someone comes to my table at a convention, it's not, are you going to buy my stuff? It's how much of it are you going to buy? Mm-hmm. I want you to be in that way. But there was, aside from those three guys, there's really no other influence. It's just... And the thing, too, is like we were on a panel the other day and we were discussing different things. You go through a series of drafts that is deeper than anything that I thought I did. You had like, you said it was like when you would do a draft, it's a separate draft, it's a separate file. I take the file and when I'm done with it, I go back and edit that file so that I don't get confused. But you go further. That's amazing. Well, the trick is you write something. Like, I think you were describing it as you keep it in your head until it's ready to hatch, right? Me, I spit it out on paper like those artists who kick a bucket of paint on the wall and they do something before it dries. Now, me, okay, it dries. I'll get it wet again and I'll paint if I have to. But if you write, let's say, eight chapters and it craps out, copy what you can, salvage what you can, but always hold on to those old drafts and modify them. It's not like you're writing from scratch, but... It's evolving something from, I don't know, some weird plankton-like thing into a silverback gorilla at the end. Mm. The evolution is mutating. It's changing. It's unpredictable in some ways. And yes, you're going to have your failed drafts, your failed species. But it's not a recipe like spaghetti Mm. or, or Ben and Jerry's ice cream. It's something organic. And what you're asking yourself is, what should happen next? What should happen next? And if you hit a brick wall, save that draft give it a letter, move on. You may have to go back to that because some idea tickles, but I never know how my stuff ends. And even when I end it, I change the endings at least twice. And then I outline it at the very end so I can catch all of the possible plot cracks because my betas, my editors, we're like, yeah, it's ready. And then I look at it, no, it's not. (laughs) We're our own worst critics. Yeah. Well, one last question. Uh, When somebody comes to you and is like, I've got an idea. I'm not sure how to proceed. What is the one thing you tell them that they need to do to move forward? Well, I ask them what the idea is. 
Um, and maybe I'll give them a little constructive criticism outright. Maybe not. But I would simply just say, start, save it, and then sleep on it. And the thing is, like you were saying, like if you're thinking about your book while you're driving, washing the dishes, working, you are writing. And that's why I say you need to write and always be writing because when you're not writing, you're thinking. And when you're thinking, you're writing. And it's an efficient way to generate a lot of crap. <laughs> that you can stir through and find your pearls. Yep, yep. And you string them along and you make your book. My thanks to all those who gave of their time for this program. And for those I missed, we'll get you on here one of these days. Go to clevelandconcoction.org for information and refer back for updates on the 2024 convention. I will see you there. I'm Tori Gates. Thank you once more. Keep on reading, writing, and creating. You've been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show with your host, Tori Gates. Find his works, including Searching for Roy Buchanan, Call It Love, and Shake Hands with the Devil, along with more independent authors of fiction and nonfiction at sunburypress.com. Thank you for listening. This is the BookSpeak Network. <laughs>